A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag. That's not the kind of thoughts I'd like to keep. A harmonious stage. Ratchet buds burst. You look dandy in the sky. Hello and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's legendary 1969 double album Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Neon Meat Dream of a Octofish, which is track 10, track 4 on side 2 of Trout Mask Replica. This was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California in March of 1969. Personnel on the track is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zootorn Rollo, on guitar. Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens, also on guitar. Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton, on bass. John French, a.k.a. Drumbo, on drums. And Don Van Bleet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, on vocals. He is also playing some kind of horn on this. Uh, the, uh, the record listed as a Simran horn, which I think is the same thing as a Shanai, from what I can tell which is an Indian double reed instrument, and also something called a musette, which I genuinely don't know what that is. Um, but both both reed instruments of some sort, and yes, I'm probably mispronouncing both of those. Uh, the length of the track is 2 minutes and 25 seconds. Recorded as uh, produced, as all the material is on Trout Mask Replica by Frank Zappa. Uh, my guest today is an author, a professional musician, and a gentleman who for a couple of years ran a a Zappa-specific radio show on Colorado State Radio KCSU. I guess it is Aaron Spriggs. Aaron, thank you for being on the show. Hi, Joel. How are you today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, so thank you very much for being on the show. Um, so I wanted to uh, start off with, um, so you ran a Zappa-specific radio program on KCSU in Colorado. Um, what was your initial introduction to the music of Frank Zappa and, and Captain Beefheart? How did you how did you encounter this music? Um, well, it's rather a, a dull story. I I knew virtually nothing about Zappa. Uh, none of my friends listened to him at all. I you know just heard the uh, kind of the urban legends and the uh, what a wild maniac he was. And this was in the uh, '80s. I decided to just look him up myself. And uh, the first Zappa record that I bought was Broadway the Hard Way, which is not very um, representative, I think, of his work. Uh, since you know he, since he he did such a wide variety of styles of music, um, that one is definitely quite a bit different than pretty much anything else he produced. Um, but it got me hooked anyway, and um, I never looked back. I think right now I'm sitting on about about 120 CDs of Zappa. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, but yeah. Um, uh, and, and while doing that radio show, it was, uh, we called it, um, or I called it studio Z on the air. I had a buddy that would sit in as a, as a DJ with me for, for most of the shows, but not all of them. Um, we called it studio Z because Zappa's first recording studio, he called that studio Z. So I figured that was, mm. um, apropos, 
But uh, yeah, so, um, you know, once I got hooked on Zappa and sort of delving into all of his stuff, of course, Bongo Fury led me right to Captain Beefheart. Right. For for listeners who don't know, Bongo Fury was an album that was cut in, I think, like maybe 76. Uh, I'd have to look it up. Um, but it w- featured uh, Don Van Vliet, who at the time um, had had no band, was not not performing music after a couple of pretty disastrous albums. And uh, his the Bongo Fury tour singing with with Zappa was kind of a, a sort of a mini comeback for him, which led him to to record uh, Bat Chain Puller. And then after that, the final three albums of his his musical career, Shiny Beast, Bat Chain Puller, Dock at the Radar Station and um, uh, Ice Cream for Crow. Uh, so um, when you what was the what were you listening to prior to Zappa? What what primed you for this? Was it did it um, were you initially shocked by it or did you take to it immediately? Uh, I took to Zappa immediately. I was all over the place. I listened to a lot of punk. Uh, I, I listened to more Europe punk, British punk than I did U.S. punk. Uh, but I listened to everything. I was uh, huge into ska. Uh, the first band I was in it was a was a ska band. I did that for about almost a decade. Um, so I, I was just all over the board. Um, I always gravitated towards horns quite a bit. Uh, so a lot of um, uh, a lot of the pop pop music of the time had synthetic horns. Um, mm-hmm. Although I was a um, uh, great fan of Oingo Boingo, they had live horns. So yeah, I think I think my musical tastes were were pretty much everywhere. Um, so I think I was, I was pretty open, orically speaking to Zappa, um, hearing, um, the, 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 the one thing that I, that I don't want to fault Zappa for, I guess, but like, he was never big on lyrics, right? Like he always mm-hmm. resent, he resented the fact that if he wanted, um, a hit on the charts here in the U S it had to have lyrics and he resented that. And so a lot of his lyrics are nonsensical nonsensical because he just, he just didn't care. And I think to a certain extent, he's sort of thumbing his nose at listeners like, you know, like, Oh, well, if you need lyrics here, suck on this. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, so I think when I, when I got into B part, um, lyrics matter more to him. And, um, I love the, I love the beats, right. You know, uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg and, um, uh, you know, that are kind of the two main staples for the beats, but there were plenty of mm-hmm. others. And they did a lot of free flowing lyrics and poetry, uh, you know, stream of consciousness. Um, and I think Beefheart really taps into that quite a bit with his lyrics. And that I truly love. Uh, I, I absolutely can hear that. And and in the track we're discussing today, uh, Neon Meat Dream of the Octofish, the, uh, the lyrics are certainly... Uh, I to be completely honest, the vocals and lyrics have so are so prominent in this song that they've I uh, before we discussed this today, listening to it earlier today was one of the first times I really concentrated on the music, listening to what was going on behind the vocals, because this is this is one of those cases. I know the members of the Magic Band have grumbled for years that the um, the mix on, on Trout Mask Replica is is poor and uh, that they're their contributions are often overshadowed by the vocals being mixed so loudly that you can't really hear what's going on with the instruments. And uh, this track and Pina are, are two examples for me where I've 
the the vocals have kind of obliterated the music up until I really took time to focus and listen to to what's going on uh, behind behind his lyrics. So um, so if Bongo Fury was your introduction to to Beefheart, what was the first um, what was your first Beefheart Beefheart only release? What what album did you pick up? Oh, uh, good question. I don't remember if it was. Um... I don't think it was Trout Mask. It it might have been. Um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Let me think for a second. Uh, well, maybe I should re- maybe I should rephrase the question. What when you first heard Van Vliet's music, um, rather than than him contributing to Zappa's music, what was your initial impression? My initial impression was um, it's much more bluesy, you know, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, I would say a little more organic. Zappa is very controlled and tight. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think Beefheart, though, he struck me as being much more, a little looser, a little more organic in nature. Um, uh, and that's, I, I find that very appealing. Um, Safe as Milk. Safe as Milk was the first um, Beefheart album I got. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, sorry about that. I was, it, brain was moving slow this morning um i know the feeling believe me (laughs) right but yeah i i think you know um it's kind of a it's a crunchier sound most of his stuff is a little on the crunchier side it's not quite so precise and crisp um you know it's a little dirtier um Mm -hmm. uh maybe a little bit more um uh hippie on the street, I suppose. I, I don't want to say man on the street, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because this is, it's, it was pretty far out there for the time and it's still pretty far out there to be honest. So um, yeah, I think, I think he really, you know, artistically, I think Beefheart was more interested in art than he was in commercial success. Uh, whereas Zappa was definitely uh, driven towards being commercially successful I don't think Zappa let his art suffer at all for it, but he was cognizant of it more. Whereas I think Beefheart was more willing to stay um, uh, less rich and famous. Well, I know that that Van Vliet would would frequently tease Zappa, and and the two were were very old friends from the um, from their time growing up in in uh, Lancaster, California. Um, but he would, he would frequently tease Zappa about being a workaholic and that he, you know, oh, you work music and I play music. Um, where, and Zappa certainly had a level of business acumen that, um, Van Vliet lacked leading Van Vliet to end up probably signing a lot of really, really bad record deals over the years. Whereas Zappa was a little, a little cagier about that kind of thing. Um, but there's, they're certainly coming to it from they're coming to avant-garde music from different perspectives. Zappa was a very learned musician. He read music, he wrote music, he had studied, um, not in a, a, a traditional, like academic, you know, going to a, a musical conservatory sense, but in, in an autodidact kind of way, studying harmony and, um, consonants and dissonance and the, you know, could, could write a score for musicians to play. Whereas Van Vliet did not read music, did not write music, composed most of Trout Mask Replica on the piano, an instrument he didn't play. Uh, so it's it's definitely yeah. coming at things from a different, um, from a, a learned versus a untutored 
uh, perspective. And I like the, the use the word organic that that's come up on several different episodes of this podcast, that there is a, an organic feeling to the music of, of Beefheart, particularly on Trout Mask Replica, the way in which tracks, um, the music seems to kind of evolve from one thing to another thing right before your eyes, as you're listening to the song. Um, it's from, you know, one piece kind of melding into the next in a way that's not any kind of traditional verse chorus verse structure, but yet seems to move with its own kind of um, internal logic. Yeah, I would, I would totally, totally agree with that. Yep. So uh, you mentioned um, that you were drawn to things with horns. Are you a horn player? Uh, yeah, I'm not a very good one, but I do like to play trumpet. Nice. And one, one question that I, that I, I've asked particularly of um, musicians and composers who, who have been on the show is, is uh, what they think of Van Vliet's saxophone playing, which um, I, I think even those of us who absolutely ad- adore his music and, and cannot get enough Beefheart and the Magic Band often have somewhat mixed feelings about, about his approach, his uh, <laughs> ec- ec- enthusiastic, <laughs> if untutored approach to the saxophone. Uh, oh, well, I, um, not to draw uh, comparisons between myself and him, but I, I too, when I play trumpet, I am a bit unbridled and often play beyond my means. Um, <laughs> I often find myself, you know, with musicians far better than myself. Um, and so I think I revel in the fact that he just did it and just went for it. Um, he wasn't restrained by the internal editor uh, telling him, oh, you can't do this. You're not good enough. Like he did it regardless of any kind of external uh, condemnation that might come along. Yes, the the in, in the internal editor, I think, was fairly non-existent with with. <laughs> he, was, he was very much about constant creativity and very, very rarely would would go back and and redo or edit or or uh, correct or change things. It was all about um, his spur of the moment creativity, which then, you know, had to be solidified by his band into something that could be repeatable. The work and the editing and the, the construction aspects generally took place from the musicians rather than, than from Van Vliet himself. Uh, so the, the track that we're discussing today, uh, neon meat dream of a octofish, I, I gave the, the guests on this show an opportunity to pick, uh, which songs they wanted to talk about. And this was the one that you that you selected. What was it that stands out about a uh, neon meat dream for you? Uh, again, it's the, the lyrics, like the, the fluidity of the lyrics, the uh, stream of consciousness where I think, you know, if you go through the lyrics and you can, you can kind of see what he's saying, but in between what he's saying is just all these rhyming nonsensical words that don't have to be there to get this, concept across i think um uh but it's not just empty filler i think you know it 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 lends itself to the experience of the song to the experience of the story that he's talking about and um i think it's that that flow of consciousness that he has kind of tapped into um uh although it um i i say that uh and listening to it, you, you can hear it. I think also it was, it was precisely, you know, chosen words. Um, 
there there's a hesitation in the the song at one point uh the the second stanza at the end where he says speckled speculation when he starts saying speckled there's a hesitation so it's almost like did he lose his was he reading these lyrics and he lost his place on the page or did he have it memorized and he just kind of hesitated because it's like oh is this the next word to say you know like it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to say but um I, I think there is some um, precision in with these words, even though they're delivered in a very uh, kind of um, Tommy Gun fashion. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. The um, it's interesting that you point out that that hesitation. Um, he probably was reading it off of a sheet of paper, based on what I've read um, about the the process of adding vocals to this album. That by and large, the, he had never rehearsed the songs with the band and was kind of more or less at random determining which lyrics would go with which song um, and fitting them in as best he could. Um, that that uh, momentary hesitation on speckled speculation, I, I always... Inspects and speckled, speckled, speckled speculation. I always noticed that as well and wondered if he was hesitating on it to draw attention to it in some way, like deliberately elongating it. So you, you particularly noticed that, that one, that one word. I, I remember reading about, um, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, the painter who would, who would frequently have like, um, words and sentences included in his his paintings and he would sometimes like cross through a word like it was like he was redacting it and huh. when someone asked him why he did that he said it's because i want you to notice that one ah okay yeah yeah i could definitely see him adding that has that slight hesitation uh the the negative space being used because he also painted right so he could yeah. be using negative space in the word to draw attention to it absolutely but you you mentioned the beats earlier, and and of all the tracks on this album, this does have that rolling, free flowing, um, kind of like a fire hydrant of words has been unleashed, and it's just kind of spewing out, um, uh, rolling over itself, seemingly in this kind of chaotic fashion, but with a an internal rhythm and logic. And he's, uh, I, I was talking to. Um, I'm recording these episodes all out of order. And, and I was talking to Eric Goodis yesterday, and he mentioned that that Van Vliet engages in wordplay, but not in what traditionally we would think of as as wordplay. It's it really is literally like he's playing with the sounds of words. Like he's simply reveling in in how they sound and how it sounds when you put one word after another one, you know, regardless of any kind of literal meaning that that could be attached to those. I mean the Probably the most famous example on this album would be Fast and Bulbous, which yes. seeming, seemingly he liked mostly for the sound of it. Um, what he's actually referring to is is an open question. Uh, but there's a lot of that in this particular track. Um, I, I was When I was listening to it earlier, the, the most expedient way for me to listen to it was just to pull it up on YouTube. 
And, you know, normally I would advise very strongly against ever reading YouTube comments because it's kind of like a pit of <laughs> ultimate darkness. <laughs> yes. Um, but but someone said when a song starts with the word lucid tentacles, you know, you're in for a ride. And I, I got to say that is, yeah, lucid tentacles, test and sleeved and joined and jointed jade pointed diamond back patterns is a pretty I mean, that that is a pretty assertive way of of. Uh, letting your listener know that that uh they're they're in for something unusual uh from what i was reading in john french's book there was some discussion of making this the first track on the album which um personally i think Frownland is the the stronger track to start it with musically um but both of them would have the same basic uh basic sense of dropping in the listener right in the deep end and you know letting them know okay this is what you're in for for the next 78 minutes you know it's this is this is not going to be an easy ride right yes yeah Yeah, you you gotta want to listen to some of this i think initially um uh it doesn't necessarily uh draw you in with a with a uh glossy hook you know a line or something to, to that you could easily repeat to yourself over and over again um it it definitely um uh it also reminds me a little bit of, um, if I can get slightly um, liter- um, literary, um, Umberto Eco. Uh, a lot of his stuff, you know, he was an Italian author, uh, right? Pretty famous for Name of the Rose. Um, uh, a lot of his stuff is really hard to read initially. And he even came out and said that he tries to make the first hundred pages very difficult to weed out the unworthy. Now, um, uh, yeah, yeah, talk about talk about ego, right? Like you have to be worthy to read my stuff. Um, Are you a bad enough dude to finish my novel? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I I don't think you know I I don't want to say that that um, uh, Beefheart was trying to weed out unworthy listeners, but I I do think that he's demanding um, a higher level of cognizance or. Um, uh, you know, he's not just giving you something bubblegum to chew on, right? So um, he's giving you art. And um, not to say that I guess bubblegum isn't art also. I, I, you know, I think Warhol, Warhol proved that. But um, uh, I think um, I think he's trying to give you a different level of art. How's that? Well, the, the con, the taking the impression of what he's saying is, is kind of like, okay, pay attention. That you know, starting off yes. with Frownland, or you know, had they chosen to go with Neon Meat Dream of Octofish, both of the songs are two of the more abrasive songs on the album. So it's it's not leading you in by the hand and saying we're you know and giving you something easy to to start with. It's it's you know the equivalent of the professor having a pop quiz the second day that's incredibly <laughs> challenging and letting you know okay this is you really need to pay attention to to what we're doing here um, right yeah i, yeah, I don't I'm not gonna spoon feed you yeah exactly i i feel like um my my old humanities professors are going to hear this and and hunt me down and beat me but i've never read umberto echo but but based on uh, that description, I think I'm going to have to give it a shot because that the sheer hubris of of saying like, yeah, I'm going to front load this with the hardest stuff <laughs> to to weed out um, to weed out the uh, the weak. Is, yeah, is, <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there's it, it's it's kind of an admirable bit of of literary assholery. 
Um, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, you know, if I could be a shill for Umberto just for a second, if you do want to read Bellman. one book of his, I would recommend The Island of the Day Before. It is a crazy wild ride uh, trying to uh, it was um, explorers traveling from the old world, heading um, west and trying to be able to delineate how far they've traveled using time. So uh, and then, of course, the ship gets shipwrecked on this island, which happens to be on the international dateline. So it's on two days at once and it gets really crazy and very layered uh, in in scope and meaning and, and and all that concepts it's a great book so there you go oh that's excellent i will i will definitely check that out that's i i love one of the joys and one of the many joys in doing this podcast is the very unexpected connections that have been made on on different episodes as as people mention oh you know Beefheart reminds me of this or this song makes me think of this and and i've been exposed to so many really cool things that i never probably or you know would have I might have come across eventually, but it would take would have taken me a while, and it certainly would have not been through such an interesting and circuitous path. So, thank you very much for that recommendation. I will be checking that out, checking that out very soon. My pleasure. I'm glad to add a few breadcrumbs to your to your trails in the in the forest. That's a great way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, back to the to the language on this this track. It's. Um, Mike Barnes in his book on on Beefheart has a has a great description of it as a surrealistic biology textbook, which mm. um, I kind of like because it is definitely referring the the octofish of the title. He's referring to something that is very clearly biological, um, but yes. the the lyrics seem more to be speaking around and evoking and and touching on um on different terms that I- evoke kind of a visceral and emotional reaction uh john french said something like uh, he used to love the sounds of some words put together like a word puzzle he's he's quoted in in eric goodis's all about jazz article with that and um i don't know so much about a puzzle but just ro- rolling with the sounds of words the the passage that always gets me is the uh, f- fact and feast and tubes, tubs, bulbs, ingest, incest, ingest, ingest, in feast, incest, and specks and speckled, s- spreckled, spreckled, speckled speculation. And uh, it just occurred to me, maybe yes. he was hesitating because that's really hard to say. <laughs> I I tripped up over it as I was <laughs> as I was reading it aloud. But yeah, then later on you've got. Dank drum and dung dust, meat, rose, and hairs, meaty meat, rose, and hairs, meaty dream, wet meat, limp, damp rose, peeled and felt fields and belts, mucus mules, like the the visceral biological, uh, organic, animal uh, quality that he's it's um, again not does not seem to be any kind of literal thing that he's describing it's just the sounds of these words and the associated connotations of these words roiling together in in some kind of you know massive squirming wet thing that sounds like something out of a david cronenberg movie um so the um lost my train of thought um i no, that that was all very beautiful. Um, 
uh, yeah, it, uh, he's definitely, um, it's a roller coaster of lyrics. He, um, uh, is playing with, uh, both the, the words themselves, the sounds themselves, right? Cause some of this tubes, tubs, bulbs, like, so he's got three U's in a row. They're all pronounced differently. Uh, tubes and tubs is very similar. Bulbs looks similar on the page, has nothing to, you know, like I, I, I suppose tuber might be a, a bulb also, but tub isn't right. So, um, so I think he's, I think he's really juggling a lot here, right? So he's, he's, he's going for the alliteration um, with sounds and alliteration with words on the page themselves. Um, and, you know, and then the next line that you read, right? Jest, incest, ingest, unjust, but it's in just, not not unjust as injustice, right? So, right. Um, but with incest, you have that sense of illegal, you know, illegalness. Mm -hmm. So, so having it's injustice, right? So, but but he splits it and he says in just, and then. Then he's playing some more with the rhyming with in feast in, and then he goes back to incest again. So he, he uses incest as sort of bookends almost uh, on that line. So he really is um, bouncing the listener around uh, really drastically, but, but it's a very, um, there's structure there. You know, it's not just random. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And the, it seems to be, there, there is a um, sexuality in the most like uh, bluntly biological sense of the word that that runs through these lyrics. Later on, we get the um, uh, squirm and serum and semen and syrup and semen and serum stirruped and syrup, and so that you know the we, <laughs> yes. the these kind of uh, forward rolling free associative lyrics that do kind of combine into some sort of some sort of image of like uh, some kind of animal sexuality um, but that again is not is not a literal uh, concrete image but just a, 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 a set of associations based on these um, wildly inventive and and protean lyrics that he is declaiming rather than singing like there is no even uh, the we've discussed on on some other episodes that uh, frequently there's kind of he's reciting the lyrics with just a touch of a sense of of melody or of pitch to them and kind of like a Sprechstimme way uh, on this track there really is not even a hint of melody in his delivery he's he is reciting this poem over the music yeah yep yeah you know and that's uh, you started this off by talking about how he, he put the lyrics in the forefront. And I've never really thought about that, to be honest. I just focused on the lyrics, but you're absolutely right. He he made them the primary instrument on this song. So um, uh, whether much he to, was maybe he was... Much to his band's chagrin, uh, I, I, in a couple <laughs> of different, uh, in both French's and, and Hawkerode's books, they, they grumble a bit about um, the music on this track being completely over overridden by by his uh, recitation and his the kind of 
uh, wheezing, wheezing horns in the background. It's also the only track on the album, to the best of my recollection, where he seems to be singing or reciting through some sort of vocal effect. Um, I, I think French indicated that it might be a Leslie speaker that he's running his voice through to give it that that slightly like it sounds a bit like it's coming through a, a PA system or a, a or a walkie talkie. Um, and to the best of my record, I mean, I know there's effects on on the blimp with um, Jeff Cotton, you know, reciting a poem through a telephone. But this is the only one I can think of where there's an effect on Van Vliet's voice. And that makes it stand out even more like it, it almost sounds like um, something coming from a submarine at the beginning with the where it sounds like he's he's clicking clicking in through some kind of submarine intercom system which gives it even more of that right. like we're, we're scuba diving underwater and we've encountered the mythical octofish which he is going to describe in in uh graphic and horrifying detail <laughs> yeah 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 very true that's all very true um uh, i think one one other thing i'd like to say real quick while i'm thinking about it is um again playing with the words and um uh on paper as well as as you know in the ear is his use of meat right neon meat mm -hmm. dream and it's not meat like the kind of meat you eat it's it's the old latin meat which you know uh means um to go or to travel or pass by um and yet i think and maybe i'm reading into it but you know with with the with the stage name of Beefheart, um, and then he's using a different type of meat in the lyrics. I wonder if that's a callback to um, his um, his uh, name that he's chosen as well. I don't know uh, because when you hear it, you don't think the old Latin word. You think you know meat as in flesh, but neon meat dream. So that's a a vivid dream that's passing by. Right. So I don't know. I, I find that, I think that's another aspect to this song that really stood out to me specifically was when, when you see the title of it, you're like, what kind of meat is that? And you know, you have to look, if you don't know, you have to look it up and, and you're like, Oh, okay. So that, that really changes or sort of changes the, some of the meaning of what's going on here. Um, although listening to it, just listening to it, not having lyrics in front of you, uh, it takes on, you know, a like meat dream, like a flesh dream. So, again, that could be going back to the uh, sexuality of it. That's really fascinating about the the Latin meat as, you know, as in a, a greeting or a passing. That's I never would have made that association. And that's that's really, really brilliant. And the fact, yeah, that it is it's specifically a dream, a meat dream a neon meat dream. So it's, you know, this vibrant passing, I'm imagining some kind of bioluminescent thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. The, uh, I guess that the title was taken, um, according to French's book anyway, from a painting that was done by, uh, Victor Hayden, who was, um, uh, Van Fleet's cousin and also appears on the album under the name, the mascara snake playing, uh, bass clarinet and and delivering vocals here and there uh who's oh, a very gifted cool. very gifted painter unfortunately there doesn't appear to be a a extant version of this painting that that uh inspired the song but yeah the the double meaning or you know multiple meanings of meat there that the when he's speaking of it in the song meaty dream wet meat meaty meat rose and hair is it it's 
it's um it certainly makes one think of meat in the terms of of flesh car- carnality yes um but i see that he's also spelling it in the lyrics with the the e the m e a t e so you're you're meeting you're meeting the meat you're um <laughs> yes <laughs> Which, which, and there, there's also possibly the aspect of a play on the idea of a wet dream, which is uh, something French mentions. Uh, French is, says it also suggests wet dream to me. Perhaps wet dream on lots of LSD might humorously be a better description. Ah, um, uh, right. Yes. <laughs> yep. Well, and you know, and he, he ends down there with this stirrup in syrup. You know, that's and you know, and and that's linked with semen and. Yeah, so uh, so it definitely could be a, a wet dream. Absolutely. Uh, on on other episodes, we've we've discussed a little bit. If if you're a fan of this music and you want to introduce someone to um, to Trout Mask Replica and not have them immediately say, "Please, for the love of God, turn that off." What song do you do you play for them first? Um, I. I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb by saying that Neon Meat Dream of an Octofish may not be the best one to to introduce uh, new listeners, um, but it certainly is is packed with uh, uh, packed with image and uh, illusion and um, it's in, incredibly evocative. Although precisely what you can't necessarily put a concrete. Um, label on on what it is evoking just a feeling of of sticky wet biology uh uh crawling underwater it, it it's it's all of this kind of wrapped up in this uh disquieting little two minute and 20 second uh snippet two minute 25 seconds excuse me that's <laughs> extra, that extra five seconds makes a huge difference <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, yeah, I don't think I'd introduce someone to Beefheart with, with this track specifically. Um, I think um, one of the other tracks that I was leaning towards uh, was uh, Pachuca Cadaver. I think that one, um, again, it's it's lyrical. I think the story is a little easier to grasp as to what he's talking about, um, uh, especially with all the, the car references. And it's a little... I think that one um, flows a little easier uh, to listen to. I think you know it's less jarring per, per se. So that would definitely be one that I would um, have someone listen to first. Uh, so you are a um, you are a professional musician uh, in addition to to being an author. Um, it, has the music of of Beefheart been an influence on on the material that you produce? Uh Unfortunately, I'd have to say no. At least um, uh, it's influenced me specifically, I would think, but um, not not in the groups that I've performed in. Well, Mm -hmm. I take that back. I've done some uh, I've done some uh, ad lib, um, um, you know, spontaneous music. And I would say that 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 everyone that I performed with doing that was definitely all Beefheart fans. So, um, and some of that, I think Beefheart would really uh, dig because uh, some of that was even homemade instruments. So um, uh, some of it was pretty crazy. Uh, like one friend was, he had uh, pisometer um, pickup mics glued to the old 
credit card swiper machines, like the manual, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, you know, so that, so he could play that rhythmically and, and yeah. Um, so it was, it was some crazy stuff that, that I think Beefheart would have uh, appreciated. Was that recorded? Cause I'd love to hear that. I, I, I'd have to ask my buddies. I don't, I don't think it was, but I could double check and let you know. Yeah, I would I just I would love to hear the idea of of percussive old style um, uh, credit card swipers is that you're speaking my language. Um, so, f- <laughs> yeah, uh, for each track on the album, uh, Darren usually rates the songs. I say on every episode, I'm not going to rate any of these songs less than than five out of five. Um, also, I apologize to the listener if you can hear the motorcycle revving in the background, but Fanfleet was into motorcycles, so I feel that that's appropriate. Um, but anyway, this, this track, like all the tracks on this album is a five out of five for me, because I feel like comparing it to anything else is, is kind of futile. Um, I, uh, Mr. Spriggs, I will give you the opportunity to rate it. Uh, if you would, if you would like, you can do it out of five, you can do it out of pretty much anything. Samuel Andrea rated one track, 10 out of five. So I feel like that just kind of flipped the script and, and anything's accessible. Um, and if you have anything that you would like to uh, plug or signal boost or or discuss, uh, the floor is yours. Oh, okay. Um, I well, I would definitely have to give it uh, five stars out of five. Um, you know, um, stars are pretty much the center of our. Well, they're definitely the center of our solar system, and everything revolves around them. The, the gravity of them draws everything in. And I think that's very apropos for this album. Um, uh, as put. for me personal. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, as for me personally, I, I, I don't know. I'm you, you have um, very graciously called me a professional musician. And while I, I suppose technically that's true, I have been paid to perform music. Uh, I treat it much more like a hobby. Same with my writing. Um, you can find me on Amazon. I've had some short stories and, and lots of poetry published. Uh, someday I'll have a, a full-length novel out. Um, it's it's finished, just a matter of getting legal paperwork done. Um, uh, but um, I think I think this was um, uh, a good a good balm for my soul today. Uh, I should be out on the playa in Black Rock Desert right now. Uh, this is the first year in 21 years I'm not at Burning Man. They canceled it due to the pandemic, and oh, wow. uh, so I'm I'm yeah, so I'm stuck here in the default world. Um, but I've had a lot of, uh, amazing artistic moments out there and, uh, play a lot of music. I, I joined a, uh, marching band. It's the first marching band that, that went out to Burning Man, uh, called the Burning Band. We kept the name very simple and, and, um, um, it's a, it's a, a hoot is probably a good way of describing the band. Um, we keep the music very simple and, um, that way anyone at any skill level can join. Uh, we have a lot of fun people, you know, we sing, we sing very short songs. Um, uh, and I think, uh, Burning Man itself is a, uh, endeavor of free expression that, uh, is really at the heart of a lot of, uh, Beefheart's work, whether, whether it was on canvas or whether it was on, um, music paper, sheet music. So, um, uh, I think I can leave it at that. I've, otherwise I'll just keep babbling. I, I, um, I've never been to Burning Man, but I, I feel like I know people who, who go every year and for them, it's, it's a, um, as you, as you put it, a balm for the soul. It's a, a wonderful communal 
experience, uh, free expression, uh, usually very funny. Um, people just, uh, you know, running, letting their creativity run wild. So I'm, I'm sorry to yeah. hear that that, that was, uh, taken from you this year, but hopefully we can get this thing, um, down to safe levels and, and people will be able to, to celebrate in that kind of, that kind of venue, um, again, very, very soon for the podcast. If you want to follow us on, uh, Twitter at underscore track by track if you want to follow me on twitter or on instagram i am at joel a bacher that's b-a-k-k-e-r uh, uh mr spriggs do you have any socials that you would like to plug uh sure i'm i'm mostly active on facebook you can find me aaron um i stuck in a uh the middle name anansi and so aaron anansi spriggs anansi was the trickster spider god from africa that told all the stories and so I thought that was appropriate on multiple levels to include in my social media. Um, yeah, feel free to look me up on Facebook, Aaron Anansi Spriggs. Excellent. Thank you so much for participating today. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to uh, share my love of uh, Captain Beefheart. And and you're, you're doing great work. Keep it up. Oh, thanks very <laughs> much. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.